listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. It's so great to be with you a little later on in the show today. I have one guest. We'll be talking about this turn toward doing things that are very uh, centered around the home, whether it's crafts and hobbies. It used to be things that people did just to survive. Why is it that people love these hobbies yet they turn away from the idea of being more present in the home day to day? We'll be discussing that, motherhood, and so much more. But in the meantime, my guest today, a real treat and a regular here on Trending, is Michael Gus. Sparrow. He works with the Reintegrative Therapy Network and also is working with a breakthrough clinic. You can find their work at reintegrativetherapy.com. Michael, thank you for being with us. Yeah, glad to be here. So you are an associate marriage and family therapist there at the Breakthrough Clinic, and you have followed the work of Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, working there with Dr. Joseph Nicolosi Jr. And you and I have been talking, and we were chatting about the fact that there was a recent conference that you had the opportunity to participate in called the Alliance for Therapeutic Choice. And I want to get some of the nuggets from this conference. For those who are just joining us, we'll be talking about things such as pornography. We'll be talking about particular kind of, I guess you could say, um, types of things that pornography are rewiring the brain to seek after, and then also issues with same-sex attraction and gender fluidity. So, Michael, can you explain what this Alliance for Therapeutic Choice conference was? Sure, yeah. So the Alliance for Therapeutic Choice and Scientific Integrity, technically that's the whole name. It's really long. It used to be called NARTH, which was the National Association for the Research and uh, Therapy of Homosexuality. And they changed the name because they began engaging with an international organization. So there is multiple groups formed together to support what we call the Alliance. And a real key mission of the Alliance for Therapeutic Choice is to ensure that clients who have unwanted sexual arousal, whatever that may be, can seek therapy from ethical licensed clinicians to support them and exploring the possibility of reducing their unwanted sexual attractions or behaviors and that their values can define them. They don't have to allow their feelings or desires to define them. And this uh, drive towards scientific integrity is really key as well because it's not just a religious group of psychologists and mental health professionals that only care about pushing clients in one way or the other. We really want to value the client's autonomy to choose their own path but also value that truth cannot contradict itself. So we believe that most of the people in this alliance, Timory, have a, a worldview that is in line with a Christian sexual ethic, and that truth should support our ultimate ideas about therapeutic choice. Because as you know, faith and reason go hand in hand. So, Michael, when we're talking about this conference, you guys are hitting on very controversial topics, but in fact, they cross right over into sound research, sound science, and incredibly proven results, like you said, that are focusing on truth. You mentioned to me that one of the presentations that you had the opportunity to hear is kind of some of the latest things regarding psychology and porn addiction by a doctor there. Yes, Dr. Monica Bro is a Catholic social worker, and she works out of Arizona, and she's done a lot of work actually developing 
tools for priests in confession when men and women confess porn addiction, particularly men. And so she's done some fascinating research to help priests form uh, the way that they do pastoral care in the confessional to better understand porn addiction. And that research has led her to help present what she did, which was her presentation was called Formation of Sexual Appetite, which is a Catholic uh, sort of integrated perspective on the many factors of development that can contribute to what we call the sexual arousal pattern or template. So tell us more about what was kind of new in that, because you mentioned to me that they're actually manufacturing kind of these fetishes and sexual arousal based on the type of exposure that you have. I think you even mentioned at one point, we'll unpack this. You guys, if you are listening, this is just shocking that for some people, especially having to do with porn addiction, Michael was telling me that some people can only be aroused if they have their hand, for example, on a mouse because they're used to having their hand on that computer mouse when they're aroused looking at pornography. Right, and that's called erotic pairing. And so the brain can kind of condition itself to pair an erotic arousal with a non-erotic object. And this is shown through conditioning research. Not This is not religious research. But what's so great about some of these presenters, like Dr. Monica Bro and others, is they utilize secular research to ensure and uh, to propagate a Catholic worldview. And some of these researchers, by the way, expressly say they don't want religious people using their research to further their mission. And Dr. Monica Bro says, sorry, you know, if you do the research, I'm going to use it, even if you don't want me to. Because, (laughs) it's you know, they basically are like, yeah, we found this stuff out that's really helpful, but don't tell anyone that might use it to contradict our our agenda. And we're going to be getting into that a little bit later on because we'll be talking about the major risk factors associated with same-sex sexual activity. And, I mean, this is just huge because even the researchers who are in favor of the community are trying to hide this. Yeah, it's interesting, Michael. I mean, this is kind of a side note. And for those who are just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Timory. My guest is Michael Gasparo, who is an associate marriage and family therapist with the Breakthrough Clinic. And Michael, you know, I hear from people all the time who listen, can you send me, you know, this stat? Can you send me that stat? And I'm constantly kind of throwing the information out. And every now and again, I'll have someone who will ask me questions such as, can you send me statistics that aren't so biased, that aren't just, you know, pro-life statistics? And I laugh because most of the time, the research that I am spitting out came from the most secular and even kind of pro-abortion, anti-family organizations out there, yet they prove what is clear about human nature. Yes, and then they don't want you to expose it to anybody, though. So, it's yeah, it's certainly an agenda-driven model that we're dealing with here in the research community. Um, With that in mind, I'll summarize real quickly one interesting aspect about Dr. Monica Bro's presentation. She highlighted that it can be helpful for people of faith to understand that sexual appetite or erotic arousal templates can be con- sort of constructed through a variety of means. And she highlights three areas, exposure, experience, and expectation. And this is not to contradict what we've talked about before in terms of family dynamics that can contribute um, and other maybe even biological predispositions that can contribute to sexual appetite formation. But this is to highlight that each of these categories can influence, to a certain degree, sexual arousal patterns. And one example of exposure she mentions is pornography. And as we identified uh, just a moment ago when you were talking, conditioning is a form of exposure. 
And secular researchers have been able to manufacture sexual fetishism through research. <laughs> so they essentially helped men to create sexual fetishes towards objects to see if through what they call operant conditioning, they could manufacture sexual arousal. And they did. Multiple secular researchers over the last 20 years, and I could cite studies for you, I'm looking at them now, Classical Conditioning of Sexual Arousal in Men and Women by Hoffman and Jansen and Turner in 2004, among others. Um, There's this whole list in front of me. And the reason I mention this is because for some people, Another set of researchers shared, and this is a great quote, Timory, this is from a qualitative study of cybersex participants, gender differences, recovery issues, and implications for therapists from a sexual addiction magazine from 2000. And they said this amazing quote. They said, through our research with people who are having problems with sexual behavior, we see more people whose arousal templates are being altered as a result of cybersex experiences. So think about that. This is Research showing that their arousal template, what is sexually arousing, is being altered through porn use and other cybersex activities. And that is shocking because most people say, you're born that way. It's just how you are. It's just what you like. Research does not support that. You know, I'm looking at this and we're seeing that there is an intentional strategic plan for how we can get people more hooked on pornography. And what's sad is that coming out of that, you're rewiring a predominantly men, but also women's brains to have this type of fetish, a type of attraction that is completely changing how they're going to relate to their future or even current spouse. But what's sad is that I see on another side of this, we see young girls as young as 13 who are experiencing pressure from men to perform in a particular way and do very specific acts in order to get that man aroused as he wishes. And we're seeing the mm-hmm. same thing within marriage because of this. I can totally empathize with that frustration on behalf of young women and even young men. There's all kinds of body dysmorphia that can come as a result of extreme porn exposure or even early irregular porn exposure. And she's highlighting in this presentation aspects of exposure. She's not claiming to highlight every part of exposure, but you did mention brain changes that happen. Neuroplasticity uh, tells us that brain scientists even testify in three-tenths of a second. You know how fast that is? A visual image can be directed or injected directly through your eyes into your brain, which is structurally changed. We grow new brain with each of these visual exposures, and that can last and that part of the new brain can continue to sort of drip, and they can monitor and measure through brain scans that it can continue to exist for up to two years from one exposure. So these images are definitely impacting people and their brain development. Can you break that down in layman's terms a little bit more? So are you saying that these images, we have three-tenths of a second for it to basically be ingrained on the brain, and from there you have it for a number of years? So it's not to say that the image is going to haunt you forever, but that when brain scientists measured brain pictures of people who had been exposed to visual images for just up to three-tenths of a second, they were able to see where that new brain tissue was impacted, and that remained available and visually uh, visible, I should say, for up to two years. So, you know, that's from a, a study by... Eberstadt and Leiden from 2010 called The Social Cost of Pornography, a Statement of Findings and Recommendations. So this sort of brain plasticity and the types of things we're seeing 
are worth considering, even from a secular perspective. What impact are these images having on the brain development of young people, or even adults for that matter? I've seen images where they've put side by side pictures of the brain of, say, a heroin addict, an alcoholic, and someone who's had a porn addiction for a period of time. And it's astounding to see the impact that porn has on the brain, damaging the brain just as these other substances do. Can you speak a little bit to that? I'm not an expert in the long-term impact on the brain of the porn use, but I will say, yeah, the pleasure reward system in the brain that gets sort of hyper, let's say, what would the best word be? It gets activated and in a sort of extra way. And that can create a reward system that the person seeks repeatedly to try to continue to gain the same reward, but with diminishing returns. So they need more and more of the same stimuli to get the same result, which contributes to this addictive cycle. Does that help some? Or yes, that does make sense. So you're completely throwing off your dopamine levels, your pleasure reward system. I mean, and that'll impact how you eat, how you consume media technology, and your desire to exercise. Am I right here? Yeah, I totally think you're on, on the right track with that. And that's one of the reasons we're concerned about, especially early exposure to pornography, when young people are still developing at such a rapid rate and their brain is still growing. That's Michael Gasparro. You are listening to Trending with Tim Ray. Michael is an associate marriage and family therapist. You can find his work at reintegrativetherapy.com where he's involved with the incredible work tying over the issues of sexuality, pornography, homosexuality. I want to talk as well, just kind of mention it as we're talking about this, you know, artificially created, really manufactured sexual type of interest and stimuli that porn is creating. It, we mentioned before that it's creating unrealistic expectations on kind of a physical performance level, but it's also creating this false sense of reality and for some, this might be new, but we have to remember that a lot of the pornography that people are consuming are photoshopped images. I know that might not be the latest technology of what people are using, but even videos, photos, all of this can be manipulated to make a person look very different than how they really are. Michael, in your practice, do you see that this unrealistic expectation, even just of how a person looks, is weighing on marriages and even just the dating scene today because people want a specific type of looking person? Yeah, I would say I sort of simplified version of not going to the scientific part of it, but let's just call it a sort of part fantasizing. It's like, I like that girl because of her legs, or, you know, I like that man because of his biceps. And of course, we're erotically attracted towards the opposite sex if it's more ordered or towards the same sex if there's some disorder. And that is part of it. But porn seems to encourage this part objectification of the other, where you don't even see them as a person, but just as this sort of collection of objective parts of themselves to help meet your sexual fantasy. And that really is the breakdown of seeing the person as in the image of God and just seeing them as an object for your own use. Michael, I'm over here laughing and I shouldn't be laughing, but we do need to have, you know, kind of some humor now and again. I'm thinking of that trend when we were in high school where people would take two hot dogs side by side and take a photo and they'd ask the question, legs or hot dogs? And I bring that up because (laughs) I I think that that's part of the pornified culture. And that was part of the joke that people can't even tell at a certain point because I think this is part of that part objectification that pornography creates. Yeah, it's definitely concerning, and we already, as human beings, in our fallen nature, I think, can be tempted towards that objectification tendency, and so I think porn just sort of 
encourages it and adds kindling to this fire that we're already striving to overcome so we can acknowledge the beauty of our sexual desire towards the opposite sex and, and embrace it with love and as a gratitude to God for that gift, but not let it go awry and lose control or lose sight of where the passions be overtake us, let's say. So there was another presentation that you heard while you were at the Alliance for Therapeutic Choice conference. My guest is Michael Gasparro. You were listening to Trending with Timory. You can listen to this episode. Don't miss the rest of the episode. You don't want to go away. You can head over to radiotrending.com if you're not able to join us for this full hour here. But one of the things you were mentioning, Michael, was that there was a whole presentation on the risks associated with homosexuality and how there's actually a lot of fear, even with a community that is pro-marriage from highlighting these risks of same-sex behavior. Yeah, and there's a great study, and I didn't actually mention this to you before, but you can actually see this study yourself. It's on thecouplesstudy.com, and it's another example of secular researchers, Spears and Lowen, who began publishing research that highlighted the non-monogamy culture and homosexual culture, and they expressly on their website say, we hope the religious right doesn't use this information again to propagate their agenda. And yet they make the information available. And in their 2010 study of long-term male couples, many said non-monogamy enabled them to stay together. And the partners on this study were partnered from 8 to 42 years, and the average length of time together was 16 years. Now, what's really interesting, Timory, when they asked the couples who had, when they had opened their relationship to other sexual partners, 42% made an agreement to be open sexually within the first three months. And by the end of the first year, 49% of all the study couples had opened their relationship. Okay? Whoa, so you're so, saying they were open to multiple partners within the first couple months? Yeah, within the first year, 49% of the study, the couples had opened their relationship to other sexual partners. And the rest of the couples took from 1 to 26 years to open their relationship, with the average being 6.6 years and the median 5 years. So open relationships, according to this kind of research, seem to be part and parcel of the homosexual community. And that is related to what we were, you asked about. What are the things that are more risky? Well, some of it might be inherent in the act itself, but some of it can be part of the expectation of the culture. It's not popular for these researchers to publish this. They are going against the LGBT agenda by openly publishing the data that highlights the promiscuity and the non-monogamy common and popular among the LGBT community, especially among the gay relationships they studied. I'm looking at this list in front of me, and I'm looking from its GLMA Health Profession professionals advancing LGBTQ equality, and there are a bunch of lists of 10 things that you should discuss with your healthcare provider. And I'm just looking at the list. It's titled, quote, the top 10 things lesbians should discuss with their healthcare providers. And I mean, we have breast cancer, depression, heart health, the lack of fitness among this community, tobacco, alcohol abuse. And I could go through this letter. I'll go ahead and post some links to it. But these are serious concerns for the health of a human person that their own people are saying we need to discuss that are being covered up in mainstream media and in general conversations or relationships. And on that same list, Timory, there's 10 things that gay men should discuss with their health care provider according to the GLMA. And they highlight not only things that they should discuss, but reasons why they should discuss it because they're worse for this community than for others. So they highlight a number seven here on their list, that STDs occur 
in sexually active gay men at a high rate. And they essentially highlight that there are a list of things like colorectal cancer. I'm so sorry, something's caught in my throat. So um, that there are things that gay men, such as HPV and HIV, and other kinds of STDs that are not just a risk, but at a much higher risk and an increased risk because you're sexually active with other men. And that's the part that is really unfair not to help people to realize, because people should know the risks associated with their behavior. And the common chorus among the LGBT movement is that as long as you use, air quotes, safe sex practices, everything's fine. And we know that's just not the case, that there's more to the story. It's complex, but men and women engaged in same-sex behavior should be able to have access to information that helps them make informed decisions. Now, as Catholics, of course, our conscience and our morals are also guiding that process, but there are also our, our reason can help us, our logic, and that logic can guide, help, hopefully, Catholic men and women to see there's not just a spiritual component, but also a physical component that is at risk when you engage in these ways. It, this just makes me sick sometimes hearing this. And I know for many, hearing these topics are difficult, but we have to get the information out there. One of the things that's really upsetting for me, Michael, is just looking at it. It gives people this false sense of security. Well, if you have, quote unquote, sex, safe sex, you know, use a condom, you know, use whatever you need to, you'll be fine. But the reality is, I'm going to be blunt that there's a lot of exchange of fluids and there's a danger for any contact that is made, especially as you enter into the realm of having incredibly contagious STDs. We're talking about AIDS, HPV, HIV. I mean, we could go on and on. The places that people are contracting cancer are places that they never were before. And it's a result of sexually transmitted diseases developing in certain areas. But the second thing that really bothers me is that this community where there's a higher predominance, not only of depression and anxiety, but major sexually transmitted diseases and long-term impact that we're encouraging through our public school systems in high school and in fact much younger than that for young children who are experiencing some sort of same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria to just start engaging with this community and the reality is is that kids take risks and we're putting them at an even higher risk by recommending this yeah and like i mentioned to, to sort of bring it full circle with dr monica bro she highlights that experiences both chosen and unchosen can contribute to the further development of those same-sex attractions. So it's not as though there's this sort of pool of same-sex attraction that's within maybe a young person, and it's the same no matter what the level, the depth of that pool. Really, what we find is that you, as you engage in experiences, whether they be same-sex in person or cyber-sex experiences, or even, unfortunately, unchosen experiences like sexual abuse, it can deepen and lengthen the depth of those feelings in that pool, as, we, as it were, for this metaphor. So we want to be mindful that it's not inborn. Genetics studies have spoken. There is predominance in nurture and environment that contribute to sexual appetite formation. So as Catholics, we can do our due diligence to do good research, understand better those factors, and try to help young people deal with it in a practical way and not just tell them, well, God told you not to do it, so listen up, which is a great starting point, but we've got to help use research and good arguments to help young people understand the risks and the, the beauty and of te uh, the teachings of the Church is they can lead them towards life and freedom. 
just a minute here. I like your thoughts. We recently covered the fact that this story came out affirming that there is no gay gene and you know gay is not an identity gay is not who you are gay is a lifestyle and that's what we stand so closely by within the catholic tradition that you are free there is freedom in human action that being said it's still nice to hear the information can you explain just briefly what was affirmed in that study the gene study is ghana et al i believe is the title affirmed that factors contributing to genetic predisposition may account for at most estimated 30% of the development of same-sex sexual arousal or erotic arousal. And so this confirms what we've known from multiple mega-meta-analysis of identical twin studies, that the predominant factors contributing to development of same-sex erotic arousal are nurture and not inborn. So we deserve as Catholics to understand better the developmental psychology involved with these patterns so we can help people overcome their unwanted behaviors and attractions. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. My guest today is Associate Marriage and Family Therapist Michael Gasparo. You can learn more about his work at reintegrativetherapy.com. We were talking before the break just briefly about how there's a study that came out yet again reaffirming that the case is closed. There is no gay gene. And Michael was talking about how there could be, they say there's no gay gene, but they also say there could be at most a 30% possible influence on same-sex attraction. Can you further explain that? Well, yeah, and I'm going to jump in real quick with a metaphor to explain genetic predisposition, what they mean by that. So in any environment, your genes may react with the environment, and I'm not an expert on gene development, but I will share that if you were, for instance, six foot five and had good hand-eye coordination, but lived in a country where basketball was never in existence, you wouldn't be a good basketball player because your predisposition towards being a good basketball player required you also be exposed to basketball, to practice with the basketball, to play on a team, to do athletic training throughout your life. So if you have this predisposition towards the potential to develop same-sex erotic arousal, but the two-thirds of the other conditions aren't there, then in theory you may never develop any of these same-sex erotic arousals. And I want to also highlight one other thing predispositions are hardly determinations of experiencing something. Um, These predispositions are listed as a lower percentage towards developing same-sex erotic arousal as they list for the predisposition towards being a smoker or towards being divorced, which are both listed as higher predispositions than same-sex erotic arousal. Both of those are considered changeable. Nobody would say you were born to be a smoker or born to be divorced. So we know that uh, this study reaffirms what we've always believed, that nurture and environment are great influencers in the development of human sexuality and should be taken seriously by the psychological field to help people better understand how they develop these arousals. And if they don't want to live according to those arousals or those behaviors because of their conscience, that the psychological community support them 
and moving towards their religious or value-oriented goals. You know, I love that we're talking about this because I just came off my last episode, if you've not caught it, with Father Robert Spitzer, and we talk about how do you achieve happiness. And we talk about the four levels of happiness. And on the lowest level is this kind of temporary, immediate gratification. And I actually think this is very relevant to the conversation here because we're talking about the tendency, right, predisposed condition to possibly um, have an erotic arousal that is different, you know, out of the norm of what it should be. Well, just because you have an erotic arousal doesn't mean that you have to act on it. And that's where, you know, Catholic theology, philosophy, and kind of the pursuit of what is true and good is possible and why the Catholic Church emphasizes chastity so clearly for everyone, whether you're single and experience attraction to the person of the same sex or whether you're single and you experience attraction to someone of the opposite sex. Absolutely. And keep in mind, we kind of discussed this before, Timory, regardless of what these genetic studies indicate, it's not going to change our understanding of God's law as intended through nature. So either way, the people that deal with this probably care very little whether it was just inborn or not, once they've accepted that their conscience is their primary motivator in their life. Of course, some people try to use born this way as an excuse to sort of enact whatever they feel like doing at the time, and it can be very confusing even to the faithful, which is why we should be really careful not to propagate that since it's not even good science. But let's say it was true. Let's say they do—they were born towards having those uh, erotic arousals towards the same sex. That wouldn't change Catholic social or moral teaching, and it wouldn't help us change the belief that Jesus Christ gave us these teachings to guide us towards freedom and peace. And we have to celebrate that in our Church and not be ashamed of it, because while temporary pleasure can feel good, and while it can give certain amounts of gratification in the moment, like you're mentioning, it's not ultimately leading us towards the ultimate freedom in Christ that we know God's law leads us towards. Thank you so much for speaking such clarity into that. And I just want to re-emphasize what Michael just said, because this is something that we need to hear as people of faith when we're talking about the topic of same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, all of it. It does not matter what the beginning of that attraction, where it may have come from. What we're talking about is human freedom, the ability to act, to be a human person, is to have intellect and free will. And that means that we can come to know something and align our whole life and direct it toward that good. And that's why God made us free. He didn't force us to love him. He gave us the opportunity. He gave us what is necessary to follow him. And so with that, I'd like to actually segue a little bit, Michael. For those who are just sure. joining us, Michael is an associate marriage and family therapist. And you're listening to Trending with Timory. Thanks for being with us. You're listening on Relevant Radio, Modern Day Radio, wherever you might be. Thank you for listening and shout out to all the new stations. So in changing kind of the course a little bit here, I want to talk about this theme of sexual fluidity and some of what you guys were talking about this past week at the conference. Yeah, um, so basically it's important when we say the term sexual fluidity so that your listeners don't panic here. We're not saying everyone should just go experiment and do whatever they feel like, but we do know that through secular research even, sexuality can be fluid, and that means even in secular research, homosexuality is not immutable or unchangeable, and that it can move on a spectrum towards more homosexuality or less homosexuality, more heterosexuality or less heterosexuality. And sometimes it's even good to think of them on two separate scales. It's not like when one diminishes, the other increases. 
Sometimes they're on separate scales where somebody might have an increase in one and a decrease in the other or vice versa. And, and this is important. We actually can use secular research to support a Catholic, a, let's say any person of faith, right to choose a life path that is right for them. So the concept of sexual orientation is multifaceted and combines attractions, behaviors, and identity. And so when we change any of these elements, it can be called sexual fluidity. So that's what we mean by that. Does that help clarify? Yes, it does. And so just affirming for people, because, you know, you have like incredibly brilliant mind addressing this issue. You're talking about sexual fluidity. And what you're affirming is that someone with same-sex attraction, that same-sex attraction could get worse or it could lessen. And that's where that sexual fluidity is and that there can be influence there. And therefore a person can choose, am I correct in making this conclusion, that they don't want to live a life just following impulse to same-sex attraction type of lifestyle. Yes, I agree. And there's a great organization called the Family Research Council that I want to kind of get out there to people to understand. You can look up Family Research Council, and they do a lot of great uh, policy advocacy in Washington, D.C., and they have a reporter or a person who's in charge of their gender and sexuality topic, let's say. His name is Peter Sprigg, and he's somebody I really want to champion. He's done excellent research to analyze evidence showing that sexual orientation can change, and that's the fluidity we're talking about. And sometimes we use that word because secular researchers use it, so we want to use their language to help make our case clear so that they can listen and hear what we have to say. And in his his research, Peter Sprigg's research summary, I think you'll find this really helpful, his research showed and suggested through all these studies that he analyzed, and you can find this on the Family Research Council website, that heterosexuality is largely stable, but homosexuality is not. So in one survey of same-sex attracted respondents, up to 38% of men and 53% of women changed to heterosexuality in only a six-year period. So we know that sexuality is fluid, and it's fluid generally more towards heterosexuality than not that make sense? It does make sense. And, you know, for those who maybe are not familiar with you and your story, you can learn more about Michael at radiotrending.com on the first episode. You actually were so generous in sharing your testimony. I remember this is something that really stood out for what you were saying, because you have experienced same-sex attraction. You were talking about how, why is it that the community tries to say that there's fluidity, but only towards same-sex attraction or kind of trying whatever you want, when in reality, there is the ability and you stand on more solid ground toward heterosexuality if you choose to align yourself with your biological reality. Absolutely. And I'm happy you brought up my testimony because sometimes when I talk about this, people think I'm using the truth as a weapon. How could I ever understand white heterosexual male? And I pause. I'm like, hang on. (laughs) I've dealt with sexual identity issues since I was a young boy, starting from adverse experiences in childhood through porn use in middle school, etc., family relationship challenges. And like we've mentioned, even if I don't know exactly all the reasons how I ended up here, I understand it better than I ever thought I would through this kind of therapy. And I have found my same-sex erotic arousal diminished significantly, and my opposite-sex arousal increased significantly. Now, the, re- the truth that you know, Timmy, is regardless of that experience of change, I would have been committed by God's grace alone to continuing this path out of homosexuality. Of course, I will champion first and foremost my need for God's grace, because there are ups and downs, I'm a sinner in need of God's mercy, and nothing's perfect. But we want to be careful that we don't use this truth as a weapon against people who deal with this issue. So it's so important that any time we discuss this, we have compassion along with truth, so that we don't marginalize people who are already struggling 
to come to terms with the teachings of the church and what they mean for them in their life. I'm so grateful for you being willing to share that. And, you know, it's neat to see you hear these stories, especially with a lot of the marches that are starting to take place across the country of people who have been liberated from same-sex attraction. And there are some people who have received therapy. There are a lot of people as well who have said, I prayed. And people say, well, you can't pray the gay away. And I would agree. You can't just pray a certain behavior away. You have to be fully involved in receiving the grace of God to combat temptation. And there are people through a strong moral and religious conviction have experienced the ability to live freely in same-sex, away from same-sex attraction. Yeah, and who are, you know, we on the outside to diminish their experience. Now, some people will say, I pray that God would take these feelings away, and he never did. Well, that might be the case, but other people said they might have through a combination of spiritual healing, psychological counseling, family support, behavior changes, etc., do experience a change, and maybe some people don't experience an innate, exact change of feelings, but enough of a change of perspective that they're able to live better the life they feel God calling them to live. That's Michael Gasparo. You can find more of his work at reintegrativetherapy.com. Also, he has a number of episodes with us here on Trending, so head over to radiotrending.com and go find him under our guests page. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory. My guest for this last segment is Noelle Maring. Now, she is the co-author with our dear friend here to Trending, Dr. Carrie Grass, of the new book, Theology of the Home. She's not the author of Dr. Grass. I totally said that wrong. Noelle, thanks for being with us. Hi, Timory. Thanks for having me. So again, Noelle Maring is my guest now. I want to talk about this article that you and Dr. Grass actually recently put out through the Federalist. The article's titled, Why Women Love the Home But Not Being a Homemaker. There's this trend that you guys talk about of kind of doing all the homely things from knitting, lots of meal prep and cooking, um, to you know growing your own garden, yet people hate the idea, particularly women, of quote-unquote being stuck in the home. Yes, isn't that fascinating? There has been such an upsurge into interest, research into interest in all things home, but still the word makes us bristle. You know, and I, I even feel it myself. I think so compelling has been the marketing and the branding against uh, homemaking that even when I hear that word, I think, oh, wait, is that me? Am I a homemaker? <laughs> I don't like the word either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it conjures up images of, you know, movies with a domineering, oppressive male and uh, under-actualized oppressed woman and you know, all these sort of real stereotypes that are really not the predominant problem that men and women are having today. You know, maybe it was 50 years ago. Who knows? I don't know. Some people say even that was overblown. But that doesn't seem to be the, the compelling pitfall of what husbands and wives are falling into today. So it's interesting that that still has such a stronghold on our imaginations. Well, and I think you guys do an incredible job through this article reaching to people where they're at because most people are told that all of your value as a woman is outside of the home. Men even believe, you know, my wife needs to be helping contribute to the family income. And more, more often men are starting to think this, you know, what are you doing all day if you're home? There's this attitude that degrades the incredible role and responsibility of raising new human life and helping to make sure that we have have orderly, virtuous, and faith-filled homes. And so you talk in your article about how people find happiness and how they compare each other. Right, right. Yeah. So 
one of the things we look at is Pat Lencioni, who is a leadership author or author on leadership, talks about three metrics for how people find uh, happiness in their vocation. The first is, am I known and respected in my work? The second is, do I know that my, why my job is important? And the third one is, am I progressing in my skills and can I measure that? And so we sort of analyze how if you just look at these three questions in a very two-dimensional way, the answer for the homemaker is almost always going to be no to every, each one. We're, it's a hidden job. We're not really known and we're not really having sort of that pat on the back that you get at the workforce. We oftentimes don't know that our job is important because the messaging has been so strong. You know, we even mentioned how Betty Friedan famously said that to spend your life at home with your children is a wasted life. And, you know, while most people would not be that strident, I do think that message still is sort of in the back of our minds just as a culture. And the third one is, am I progressing and can I measure that? And so we talk about how the craft of motherhood in so many ways is because of so many different technological advances and conveniences, there's a lot of it that's not so much craft-based anymore so much as, you know, just chores and errands and driving the kids here and check, moving the laundry here. And it feels less skill-based than other things. And so how do we flip that metric and start to see, not in a two-dimensional way, what our motherhood looks like, but in a deeper way? So am I known? Am I respected? Well, I'm known by our Lord. He sees me, and the hidden life is the life, you know, that He chose for a long part of His life and that Our Lady chose for a long part of her life. Am I respected? Um, you know, I think a lot of that can be resolved from really understanding where our identity comes from, that it comes from Christ, and also from having a happy and healthy and mutually supportive marriage. Um, that is so crucial to, I think, being a satisfied homemaker. And thirdly, am I progressing and can I measure that? We don't go into depth about on this in particular, but I, you know, thinking about it, I've really been thinking about how, you know, the Catholic life really prepares you to be progressing as a human in full, you know, like we're constantly struggling to grow in generosity and to, when we fail, we start again and we struggle and we examine how we're doing and we make go to confession and try to resolve things. Anyway, so there's a real growth that's there in a deep way for, for any everyone, but I think in particular for someone who's living a daily hidden life of love for the family. We have this aversion really to having kind of being unknown of not being seen of not yeah. being heard. You know, I recently did an interview with a do- father. I called him doctor. He is a doctor father, Dr. Father Robert Spitzer. And we we're talking yeah. about the four levels of happiness. And the mm-hmm. one level that so many people he says are stuck on is in this comparison game that is just so prevalent. And what's sad is that that's a lower form of happiness yet. That's where the social media media people live. And I find that that's where a lot of women are still battling where you have this working mom versus stay-at-home mom and both are envying each other and it's sad because the reality is is that not only is it preventing you from having happiness within your home within your job but it's preventing you from finding true happiness and growing with god in your faith for those who are just joining us, that's Noelle Maring, who's with me. She's the author of Theology of the Home. You're listening to Trending with Timory. So, Noelle, what would you say to someone who's kind of in the midst of that comparison battle? They want to get out of it, and maybe they even want to lean more so toward whether it's being more present in the home or finding peace with their presence in the home. Right. Yeah, that is such a big 
question right now because we are so stuck in the comparison game. And I really think that comparing ourselves is such a killer to our spiritual life. It's really a waste of time and it's super toxic. One of the things I like to do to try to break out of that type of cycle is to really sort of, if I feel inadequate compared to another woman, try to twist that into being thinking how beautiful that she has this ability or this skill and to just be glad and admiring of her and not letting that become something that affects me. Um, but prior to that, really, you know, the real anecdote, antidote is our interior life of prayer, right? So the closer we are maintaining ourselves to Christ on a daily basis with a real intentionality, the more we just draw so much from Him and not from sort of our insecurities and these sort of lower in- instincts in ourselves. I think that's great to, to kind of begin to be more self-aware, as you're saying, you know, start to be aware of what's going on, where are we orienting ourselves and also starting to give to other people, maybe those exact same people that we are starting to feel envious of or comparing to, we'll start to appreciate, well, what do they have that I love that I wish I had? How, what can I do to achieve that? So rather than almost looking at them and pointing and blaming almost turn in toward what can I do to just maybe even be more more present, more happy. And I actually tying this into your book, Noel, this is a theme I see really present in your book, Theology of the Home that just came out, is that you have this mentality that it doesn't matter how much you have, it doesn't matter how big your house is, you know, what type of Turkish, you know, washcloth or bath towel you have. It's what you're making of where you are and what you have. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, and I think if we you know, one real key is that if we keep the, our order in our minds of our priorities, so, you know, the top is going to be our relationship with God, next is our relationship with our, uh, with our spouse, our children, you know, our apostolate, our friendships, and our work, we really keep it like that order in check. I think that can correct, be a self-corrective when we get off, you know, off-skewed and start prioritizing things we ought not, or having things suffer that we ought not for the sake of something lower. So, Um, How that's going to look in each family is going to look differently, but um, just keeping that principle in mind. And also, I think when you were saying about when we're looking at someone else and comparing or um, looking too much at the material aspects of our life, I think we can go through life thinking, what can I get out of this interaction or what can I get out of this? And, you know, the great paradox is that we really receive less happiness by being so focused <laughs> on what we can get out of interactions and things. And I, my spiritual director gave me great imagery for this once when I was talking to him about, I was getting some great feedback for some work I was doing, and I thought, gosh, this is so pleasant to be getting all of these paths of the back, and, and I was, you know, saying, no, I don't want to become dependent on that or attached to that. And he said, just think, just be lighter about it. Think of it like a piece of cake. You get this piece of cake and you can enjoy it. It's delightful, but it's just a piece of cake. Let it go, you know. <laughs> and I think that's such a great imagery of like these things are pleasant and it's nice to get things out, you know, receive things. But our point of our life is to give of ourselves and to be generous. And that is how we and where we find our happiness, tying it back into the happiness thing you're talking about. So, yeah, I think it's a complex issue, but really to re look, reorient ourselves and see the beauty of taking care as a home and the people who are in it as just being a really, truly wonderful road and a real gift and an honor to be able to do that. Uh, it's so important. And Noel, when you're talking about how often we go into things thinking, well, what can I get out of this? 
I think a really great day is when you feel yourself like, man, I want, I want, I want. Sometimes you hear those words in your own head. I want, I I need. When this starts to over consume us, we need to start to reorient and say, no, what do I need to give up to let go of this? Just honestly, often this disordered desire within me that has just begun to rule my life. Yes, I think that's totally insightful and, and huge. And so it's such a key reorientation. Um, and it really is hard to do because it's painful to give up, you know, these pieces of ourselves or, you know, what we want in the small and short term, but in the long term, it really is such a path that kind of exercises that generosity muscle again and again, and really builds a life of love. And everybody wants love. You know, we always talk about love. Everybody talks about love, but we don't talk about how do we get there? You know, the sacrifice that's involved. We think about the romance, but romance is great and important, beautiful, but you know, it's sacrifice and it's generosity. Please go and check out my latest episode of Trending that really does dive into the topic of happiness with Father Robert Spitzer. If you've enjoyed the show, you can learn more about my guest, Noelle, at radiotrending.com and buy her new book, Theology of Home, at theologyofhome.com. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guest, visit radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 